I wanted to write a story where the kid's trans identity was central to the story, but was the point at which the story was able to expand. So I think oftentimes a trans identity is used to kind of like contract or constrict the text and say that like your life doesn't have to be limited by this thing. You can still be just like everybody else. And I wanted to write a story that said, here's how this kid's trans identity actually expands his parents' world and expands the world of his new sibling and is a starting point for how to make his world a better place and not just how everything can just be the same as soon as he transitions. For every young person who loves books, I include myself in that category, reading opens up the brain, the heart and the imagination. To find solace in stories and characters you find in your favorite books is to have the world expand and grow with every turn of the page. So what does it mean for young people today to see transgender characters in their books? Welcome to Storyteller, a podcast about how and why we tell stories. I'm your host, Lisa Golden. This episode is a part of the launch, so I am going to ask you, if you're listening, to please rate and review the podcast if you've got a couple of seconds um, when you're done listening. It really makes all the difference in helping other people find the show. On this episode, what it means to have complex transgender narratives in stories for children. I spoke with Kyle Lukoff, a writer, former librarian, and the 2020 winner of the Stonewall Children's and Young Adult Literature Award for his beautiful picture book, When Aiden Became a Brother. Kyle is a trans man. We discussed how he came to write a book with a trans main character after publishing two books that explored the world of words and poetry, what it means to weave stories for children that are diverse, and what it means when a writer with a platform as prominent as J.K. Rowling begins a war of words against the trans community, which can have very real-world consequences. A note for listeners, we recorded this interview during lockdown, and Kyle lives in New York City, so I'm sure you can forgive some Big Apple sounds that occasionally flow through his window. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kyle Lukoff. Kyle, thank you so much for joining me today on Storyteller. Um, I thought maybe we should just go straight into it and if you could start by telling me um, about how you came to write your award-winning children's book, uh, How Aiden Became a Brother. Sure. So I only realized that this was a book that I could write after I got my first two books published. Um, My first picture book is called A Storytelling of Ravens, and it is something that I had actually started working on about a decade before it came out. It's just a exploration of collective nouns for animals, like a bloat of hippopotamuses or a memory of elephants. And that was the first book that I ever sold. And then the second picture book that I sold was called Explosion at the Poem Factory, which came out this past April. And it was similar in that it was all about language and wordplay and how to use complicated terms in a way that would be entertaining and amusing for children. So I had sold two picture books. I had an agent. I had a vague sense of how this whole world worked. And I thought, you know what? I should write a picture book about a transgender boy because at the time, I didn't know of any that had been published by any traditional publishers. All the ones I knew about were self-published or independently published. And I also knew that, you know, I I was a school librarian. I was a transgender man. I'd been trans for a long time before that. And I thought, 
I want to write a book before some cis person gets to it before me. Um, yes. But I also, right, it was kind of spiteful, actually. Um, <laughs> but I didn't know, it was hard, I didn't want to at first, because I didn't know how to approach that story without it being either extremely reductive, or how to approach a story without following the very common model for picture books that deal with difference, which is once upon a time, there's a kid or an anthropomorphized animal or object that is different from everyone else. And then everyone is really mean to that character. And then suddenly there's some like transformative moment where it ends with everyone being nice to that character. It's basically like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or the Ugly Duckling. Yeah. And I was, I, I am very bored with that story. I just, I'm, I'm tired of it because there's so many of, there's so many of them. Um, but I was at home one day, I was homesick from work and I was making breakfast and I had this sudden brainstorm of a young transgender boy saying to the reader, this is what my room looked like when I was born. And this is what my room looks like now. And the idea of this kid telling you who he is through the choices that he got to make about his environment just lodged into my brain. So I stopped making breakfast. I sat down, I wrote a terrible first draft and <laughs> worked on it and worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. And eventually through a lot of like meanderings and side paths, I finally sold it on my own to Lee and Lowe who ended up publishing it. Amazing. I, I've, I thought it was really interesting. The, the idea that you, you get to meet Aiden and his parents and how they go on this journey, but then how Aiden also gets to take ownership when he finds out that he's going to become a brother and sort of the world that he wants for this this new sibling that's coming along like was it important to you that 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 there was the two roles like there's there's the experience that Aiden has and then Aiden as an active agent in in wanting the best for a sibling that he's going to love uh you actually just put it perfectly but yeah that was central to the kind of trans story that I wanted to tell I wanted to try a story where the kid's trans identity was central to the story but was the point at which the story was able to expand. So I think oftentimes a kid's identity or a kid's like, or like a trans identity is used to kind of like contract or constrict the text yeah, and say that like your life doesn't have to be limited by this thing. You can still be just like everybody else. And I wanted to write a story that said, here's how this kid's trans identity actually expands his parents' world and expands the world of his new sibling and is a starting point for how to make his world a better place and not just how everything can just be the same as soon as he transitions. Yeah. And I think, well, I mean, you've had on what I find a really interesting question of this when we're trying to diversify the sort of homogeneity of storytelling in, of the last... I mean, I guess the whole of, whole of history. Um, but, you know, is, the, is the, the balance between the idea of like needing to explicitly have characters, um, you know, say that they're trans, be have that be an important part of the story, but also that not be the only part of their story. And I guess I would love to know where you think or where we are in that balance of, you know, having a main character who's trans in a book that that can help both um, kids who are trans and kids who are not trans to to understand and see and just have that representation versus you know a sort of Fantastic Five where one of the characters is trans <laughs> and that's just a normal uh, part of their identity. It's not the sort of driving force of the whole 
of their whole narrative. Where, where do you think the balance lies there? Yeah, so I can't really speak to other authors or other stories. I can only really talk about what I personally like. Um, yeah. I So I came out as trans about 15 years ago. And I've lived in New York City for my entire adult life. And I've been lucky enough to have a lot of trans communities. So I go to like trans parties and book launches and concerts and like concerts where like, you know, the bands are trans and I read books by my trans friends and I go to readings by my trans friends and I like date other trans people and I also break up with other trans people. Like it's it's a central organizing focus of my life, but in the same way that like being a heterosexual is like central for other people's lives, they just don't really notice it in the same way. Mm. So for me, what I'm interested in are stories where a person's trans identity is part of the larger culture that they're in. So it's not just something that happened to them a long time ago that they never talk about. And it's also not a problem that they're constantly trying to be solved, but it is the point of everything else that is part of a person's life, like what you make for dinner and what you gossip about with your friends and like why you don't want to hang out with that person anymore. Um, because I think that like, even like a person's like mainstream or an identity that they have that's more than the majority of their lives are similarly organized that way. It's just allowed to be invisible. Um, yeah. In the same way that like, for me, it's considered like a subculture, which it is. And I'm fine with that. I like being in a subculture. It's fun. Yeah. From again, as your as a writer, what was what did you have a really different experience selling your first two books to selling Aiden? Like what what was the difference when that 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 subculture came into play? <laughs> Can it hear you laughing? Sure, it sure was different. Um so I had an agent for my first two books, for the ones that were mostly focused around language and not so much around anyone's identity. Um, and those sold relatively easily. I think she sold a storytelling of Ravens after like two months. And the poetry book to the same editor was also very easy to sell. But once I started trying to write a trans picture book, it became much, much, much harder. Um, I, It was like I had to convince everybody from agents to editors that I knew what I was talking about and that this story was a good one like they just didn't believe it because they couldn't see it the same way that i saw it so i ended up uh parting ways with my agent because i decided that i wanted to try to sell it myself because i thought that i could maybe do a better job of advocating for it um and i really only sold it because a friend of mine another author named bill Konigsberg, suggested that i get in touch with his editor who had recently moved houses and was looking to acquire more picture books so he gave me her email address and I was really lucky to land with Cheryl Klein who's a brilliant editor who also is wise enough to know what she doesn't know and understand and be able to see the value in the book without entirely understanding why and she was able to work with me to make it as accessible a text as possible without also compromising my vision for it yeah. I mean, uh, tell me if this sounds very naive as a as a me sitting in London kind of thing, but it feels quite wild to me that that you would have to do so much convincing like in I would imagine I imagine the um the literary world to be like incredibly sort of left and liberal and you're in New York and it's kind of wild. It's sort of it it says a lot um that even in I mean what this was was it 
a year ago, two years ago now, that you were still having to do that work of of um, of convincing people that it was a story that needed to be told. Is that just a bit naive of me? Um, I would say that I was similarly surprised, um, especially. So I was surprised because I knew that Aiden was a good book, um, and I was surprised that so many people seem to have these like blank spots about what they thought a trans story could do. And so like one editor that I met with, like stopped in the middle of our conversation to ask me what I thought about Caitlyn Jenner. And then to say that like, she wore too much makeup, uh, which is just transphobia, like pure and simple. I was surprised. And also it was kind of what I expected at the same time. And then I was also taking into account like the knowledge of like I am white and I have a fairly binary gender identity and I look fairly unremarkable. Like if, if someone looks at me, they can assume that I'm cis relatively easily. Um, I went to an Ivy League college. I've been working as a school librarian. Like I was as I about I have close to as much privilege as a trans person can. And I was having such a hard time that it also means that I know exactly how hard it is for other trans people who don't have the same privilege as I do to get their stories so there's a lot of talk about like censorship and like oh like it's so terrible that like these books are being pulled or that people won't read these books because of whatever but I'm always so much more concerned with the stories that never get their foot through the door because an editor or an agent looks at the person and decides that they're just too weird to have a book yeah or they're just too foreign or too alien yeah um because they looked at me and thought that and I am like fairly comfortably situated within these structures of power um, which is not something that I like about myself it's just honest and accurate so I mean I think if we can move on to your um just your your story like when did you when did you know that you wanted to become a writer it's funny I never particularly wanted to become a writer it was just clear that that was what I was and that's what I was going to do um when I was in high school, I would take those, you know, I don't know if you have these in the in the UK, but I would take these tests about like what career would be best for you. And the only oh, yeah. ones that came up were like journalist or writer or whatever. Um, and I decided that, that I wouldn't be. Yeah, I decided I would be a bad journalist because I don't like asking people questions. Um, <laughs> not because I don't care about people. I just don't like being nosy. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, oh, I love being nosy. I know, That's I, exactly why I do this job. <laughs> I love nosy people. I just I'm not good at it. I don't know. Um, but I just, you know, kids ask me all the time, like, why do you want to be a writer? Or when did you decide to become a writer? And it never felt like an act of desire or a decision. It just, I don't know what else to do. Like, I don't know how not to write. Yeah. I feel like those are the words of a true writer. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I I would love that. I'm always quite envious of people who who have that sort of understanding like that feeling that it's not a decision um I I think that's a wonderful gift there's a lot of us out here who are very confused and still not sure what they're doing so (laughs) that's great I love that um well then I mean to extend upon that like so your first book was um a storytelling of ravens I mean what did that feel like when you held your first published book in your hands um it felt It's actually, it's funny, like a lot of my journey as a writer feels similarly to my journey as a trans person. Like it all just kind of happened to me and it felt like this outside force that was just going along whether I wanted it to or not. Um, 
and holding my first published book. This sounds really ungrateful, but it's not. It feels really similar to when I got top surgery and I first saw my chest without bandages or anything. I was like, oh, like that's what it's supposed to be. Like, yeah, I'm supposed to have oh a chest God. that looks like this. Like my name is supposed to be on a book. Um, yeah. It was like cool, but it was also just very, just I knew it was going to happen. And then also, I think part of that is how long publishing takes. So like, I was extremely excited the very first time I got the call that one of my books was going to be published. And then it took three years for me to hold it in my hands. So I had a lot of time to get used to the idea. Yeah, yeah. But the little I've heard from writers, basically, by the time it comes out, you're so done with it. Or like, you're so past the process of where you're excited about it anymore. You're like, yeah, fine. Yeah, like, I'm excited about a book that only one person has seen so far. All my other books, I'm oh, like, yeah, yeah, like that's cool. I'm, I did that one already. I'm excited about this next one. In our, in our, our chat before, you told me a little bit about um, your focus on picture books and and why you love that form and structure. Could you tell me a little bit about why you think they're such good tools for storytelling? Yeah, I love picture books because I love rules. <laughs> which is not another fact about myself that I don't like. It's just ingrained in me. Um, I love working within strictures and constraints and boundaries because I think that those are the most interesting. And I like knowing that I have freedom to say whatever I want to say within a certain guidelines. So the reason why I really like picture books is because they remind me a lot of formalist poetry, which is the only kind of poetry I like to write. Like I don't like free verse, but I do like sestinas and sonnets and villanelles. And I like picture books because it's really, really challenging to create something where every single little piece has to interlock perfectly and where it's possible to write something because it's the word count is so short, because all of my picture books are, I think, under a thousand words, where it's possible to have every single word be exactly the right one in exactly the right order. Um, it's this kind of challenge that I think other people get from like crossword puzzles or Sudoku or whatever. It like exercises that same part of my brain. Mm, yeah, this is sort of, I don't want to call it a perfectionism, but there's an exactness there that you really have to land each yeah. word, as like you said. An exactness and a precision that I really enjoy. Amazing. And so um, for the for the illustrations, like how I, I'd be just for, for people who are who are completely outside the world, how how do, how do you go about finding someone to illustrate the books? Like, did you? Yeah, I just, I wouldn't even know where you begin. Do you just yeah. know people who you're friends with? So what's cool or what's what's surprising to almost everyone is that usually, and in, certainly in my case, the author has absolutely no control over the illustrator or the illustrations whatsoever. Wow. Okay. So for my first two books for Ravens and Poem Factory, in both times, the editor emailed me and I was like, hey, we've chosen this illustrator. We sure hope you like them. And then I saw the final copy and they were like, here are the illustrations for your book. We sure hope you like them. And in both cases, I was really lucky to be paired with Natalie Nelson for my first book and Mark Hoffman for my second. Um, and they're both brilliant and hilarious. And I love their artwork. Lead with when Aiden became a brother was a little bit different because my editor wanted to make sure that I felt good about the illustrator and wanted to make sure that the illustrations were well done from like a trans competency perspective. Um, yeah. I had no, I had no formal power, but she asked for my opinion about, she gave me a choice of a few different illustrators. And I said that I loved Keilani's work and that I would be overjoyed if she was paired with the text. Um, and luckily Cheryl agreed with me. 
And then when it came to the illustrations, I was allowed to make some suggestions about some small details, mostly as they related to um, depicting Aiden as a transgender boy. But I, but everything else Keilani had full uh, artistic control over. The way that I often explain it to children is I say, I've shared that I'm transgender in the same way that Aiden is transgender, but you've probably noticed that I'm white and that Aiden has brown skin because his mother is black and his father is Filipino. And I explain that that's because that's what Keilani's family looks like. And I say that it's like, I put part of my story into this book and she put part of her story into this book. Amazing. Um, which is really cool. Yeah, it's not something that I told her to do or that I had any control or power over, but I think it's something that really like enriches the story and makes it almost like the two of us had a baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a beautiful little baby. Yeah. Um I mean, I find that quite incredible because I guess um you know my my background is um is very visual and and uh, you know I make documentaries and so I I find that really fascinating that the the writing and the pictures cuz because just in the most beautiful children's books they are I mean picture books are are so they seem so cohesive it's it's almost quite quite strange to think of them as being quite separate. Yeah, and I it was surprising to me at first, but it actually, at least for me, it makes a lot of sense because I am not a visual person whatsoever. You do not want my opinion when it comes to <laughs> anything artistic. Uh, so it's honestly for the best that I just give up all control over that. But um, I mean, when you're telling, when you, when you, like you said, when you're making your coffee in the morning and you, the story of Aiden kind of like walks into your head, do you, do you see the actual characters or is it very verbal? It's more like you can, you can see the beat of the words or the nuance or the words you'd like to choose. Like it's, so it's completely non, non visual. I see, I see it visually, but very vaguely. Like I don't see details of a face or details of a room or details of a scene. It's just kind of like a vague, like an extremely blurry image. Um, yeah. That I'm not emotionally wedded to at all. Could you tell me a little bit about um, just being a, a librarian? Because I just love that. What does being a librarian mean to you? Because I just think in in this time, to be able to give um, younger people access to stories in a world where we're like so overwhelmed with stories and so overwhelmed with media and all these things fighting for our attention, like the role of a librarian sort of being able to place a good book in someone's hand is like something quite magical yeah I so I worked for eight years as a librarian at an elementary school called Corlears in New York City and I just decided to leave to be a full-time writer and it's going to be so hard for me to not be a librarian anymore like I so in the in the author's note to my first novel which is coming out next year called Too Bright to See I was sharing a little bit about how I came to write this book uh, I sometimes say that this book is like these two other books that I mentioned that felt similar in tone to me. And I named these two other books and these two other authors. And my editor suggested that we take it out because she's like, oh, but like you don't, you know, it's you don't really advertise someone else's book in your own book. And I was like, oh, I guess I guess that makes sense. I'm just a librarian. So it's my job to tell people about other books that I think they might like if they like this one. Yeah. And it's actually been it's been hard for me to juggle my like entrenched mindset as a librarian with my new reality as a writer because you know when someone says what's a good book for the situation it might not be mine like maybe somebody wants 
you know, a sci-fi novel and mine's not good for that. Or maybe somebody wants a picture book about a kid dealing with like the death of a goldfish and that's not my book. Yeah. And I think that one thing that's really wonderful and important about being a librarian or a bookseller is getting to know the people in your community and getting to know what they've read before and what they might want to read next and what they need and what they like and like what makes them uncomfortable, but maybe in a good way. Because so much of connecting people with books is that relationship. And also knowing that just because you personally don't enjoy something doesn't mean that someone else won't get great value from it. And I love that sort of like putting your own ego aside and focusing on someone else's needs and wants um, and helping them find that. Even if it's not a book that you like or a book that you've read, you still know that it's going to be a good fit for them. It feels like this magical relationship that I am going to miss a lot. Oh, I love that. Um, I'm a I'm a big giver of books. I'm that annoying friend that's always giving people's book people books. <laughs> that's not annoying um, at all. And <laughs> well, I realized I think a couple of years ago I I definitely had that like swap over when I was like, oh, I'm much better now at looking at someone and being like, what book do you want to read? What books do I know that I think you will enjoy rather than just getting incredibly excited and then like trying to get everyone, force everyone to read the book (laughs) that I love the most. I just still think there's something really beautiful about someone offering you a book. It just seems, it's like someone giving you a world, you know what I mean? There's something so beautiful in someone just saying like, I think you would like this. Um, I still think it's one of the beautiful things we can do for each other yeah um anyway I will stop being so sappy um (laughs) let's just let's talk about JK Rowling because um (laughs) you know it's she it's almost hard to even get on top of it because she seems to be popping out with something new every couple of days just to say that nothing she's saying is new it's all very old she's just she just has a lot of people listening to her but it's none of it is new yeah, yeah. Could you speak a bit more to that? Like the the ideas that she's she's bringing up are just um, very old ideas that you've been you've heard. Oh yeah, I mean her this version of feminism that tries to exclude trans women or any trans people is not new. So the kind of feminism that she's putting forth that excludes all trans people and especially trans women is not new. I mean, there's been strains of this and like old lesbian organizing from the 60s and 70s, there was a huge fight around including trans women in something called the Michigan Women's Music Festival in the United States. There have been a lot of extremely aggressive trans misogynist and transphobic people online who are like doxing trans people and like trying to, it's it's been very bad. Um, When I was very first coming out, I stumbled across what they call themselves, which is gender critical feminism. And reading these arguments that are like, you know, trans people are deluded, like they accusing trans people of reifying gender categories by wanting to change from one to the other, while seeming to forget that cis people also have genders that they're also doing. It's like blaming the most marginalized group of people for a problem that we didn't invent, we're just trying to survive under. Yeah. And it was like hard to read that as a much younger trans person trying to figure out who I was because like I also, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to tell people that they have to do something. I don't want to be responsible for, you know, hurting other people. So it took a while to figure out that they were just like cruel bigots who had some strange obsession with what I wanted to do with my body and my sense of self. Hmm. It seems to be, I, I read a bit, I tried to read up a bit more about that, that um, gender critical 
um, theory before we spoke. And yeah, I mean, I really, um, the, the binary nature of the thinking around it, what was interesting to me just in the fact that it seems that it seems, it seems so outdated. Do you know what I mean? Like the Mm -hmm. whole world, the whole world has just expanded so much. And I think it just seems really, it seems like a really strange hill to die on, if I'm honest. Um, and the, so I thought, oh, sorry. Yes. No, no, go ahead. It's fine. I actually don't want to start ranting about Turks forever because it's not okay. <laughs> Well, you see, instead of, I thought, I thought, you know what, instead of, um, ranting about turfs, which which I, as I said before we started, um, if anyone really wants to get into this, there are plenty of spaces on the internet where you can. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we are on Storyteller, I thought maybe a way into it would be this idea that she's sort of quite often people are hiding really, really complex um, conversations behind semantics and behind words. And, it, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I grew up loving Harry Potter. So, you know, when I saw the thing with um, J.K. Rowling, I mean, this was a this was a while ago now um, with her, you know, she retweeted an article where they'd said uh, people who menstruate and she sort of was yeah. like, oh, there used to be a word for these. And for me, it kind of really reminded me of Jordan Peterson. And it really hit off that thing of like him refusing to use people's pronouns. And, and, and I just, I mean, I never thought I'd live to see the day when I'd put the two of them in the same box. <laughs> um, so as a writer, as a lover of words, can you just speak to why um, words are important and pronouns are important and how people get treated, like how language does translate to um, action and thought and um, framing? Sort of how do you how do you see the role of words in this in this story? Yeah, well I think I think that that question is kind of is at the root of a lot of the arguments in children's and young adult literature today. There's a lot of questions about who can write what stories and why should we tell people what they can and can't say? And why does it matter if this book uses this language in it? It's just a book and it's just a book for kids. And I think that those arguments are all often really ingenuous because on the one hand, we talk about how stories are so powerful and can change the world and can change the way that someone sees themselves or sees their situation. And on a flip side say, oh, it's not really a big deal. Like they're not going to notice. They're not going to internalize it. And I know for a fact that some of the books that I read as a child made me a worse human being. Like some of the books that I read as a child made me more racist because they were books that were espousing uncriticized racist views that as a young person, I was just like, oh, okay. Like my teacher gave me this book and my parents gave me this book and these ideas are in this book. So that must mean that these ideas are okay. Hmm. But on the other hand, other books made me a better person because they showed me people different from myself living lives that I hadn't previously imagined. And they gave me words to describe injustices that I saw and they like inspired me to take action in a way similar to the characters that I write about. So books can make us better people and they can also make us worse people. And I think that any argument that tries to say that it's just one or the other is trying to sell you something and is probably trying to sell you their specific words as the right ones. Um, do, do you think people hide their arguments behind something like that? Like, oh, I mean, I, even, I, I mean, if, 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 if <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I mean, even the menstruation one, I just find a really, a really odd one for people to 
to grasp I guess you know okay this is so I am a um a cisgendered woman and it's just one of those things that like watching people try hold on to this thing I've spent my whole life not I mean obviously your 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 period is like this in, in whatever female thing but like I've never it's never I've never really held on to that as a, an identity do you know what I mean <laughs> so then it's really funny that suddenly someone's like someone's trying to take that away from you I'm like am I really that worried about that like what is the problem like this is really not so I just you know I, I that was just such a red flag and I think it should be a red I just I think I kind of want to speak to people who are not um privy to these conversations who maybe don't know any trans people so, who are just kind of like oh I loved Harry Potter and I'm just like this is really dangerous like people trying to like be wary when people try to get you to to hold on to something like that so a thing so i think that that kind of encapsulates why i don't actually argue with that kind of rhetoric is because it is so clearly and blatantly on its face anti-feminist that you know that it has to be hiding some darker bigotry like Hmm. the whole point of feminism is to say that women are not simply their reproductive capacities yeah, <laughs> and that women are not simply their, their aesthetic. And a lot of turf argument, which claims to be feminist is saying trans women can't be women because some of them are tall and some of them are hairy and some of them have broad shoulders. When real feminism says that any woman can look like, like tall women are fine and women shouldn't have to mm-hmm. shave their legs or their armpits and that like women should have loud voices. So it's using actual feminist beliefs about women to then attack other women. Um, It's just, it's so blatantly on its face wrong that I don't even want to argue with it because it's clear that they're just trying to take my attention and my energy for malicious purposes and I don't want to give it to them. Yeah, I'm just gonna keep writing the stories that I write and I've got to say, just take all those beautiful words and all that beautiful energy and just keep making beautiful books. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to ask you the hardest question. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite book? Do you have a favorite book? I, If I had to choose a favorite book, it will probably have to be the book that I keep a copy of in my backpack all the time, which is Hamlet, which is kind of embarrassing to admit because it's Shakespeare, but I just really like Hamlet very much. I don't even like the story. I just like the words, like the bit where he and his mom are arguing and she says, come, come, you question with an idle tongue. And he says, go, go, you answer with a wicked tongue. Um, And then earlier when he says like, but break my heart for I must hold my tongue. Like it's just, the language is so beautiful that I can just roll it around in my brain all day. Um, But another book that I've been reading a lot is called The Merry Spinster by Daniel Ortberg, now Daniel Lavery. And it's a collection of short stories where he retells classical fairy tales and makes them both like feminist and horrifying at the same time. And his use of language actually feels similar to me where I can just roll his sentences around in my brain for a very long time and just find pure pleasure in it. But there are so many other books that I love that please don't take these as the only two that I I read and that I love and that I talk about and that like live inside my heart because they're certainly not. So Carl, what's up next for you? So I mentioned that my first novel is coming out next spring. It's called Too Bright to See. And it's a middle grade novel 
about a kid being haunted by the ghost of their dead uncle. And it's kind of a sad story and it's kind of a ghost story, but I promise it has a happy ending. And that's middle grade, so it's around for ages like 9, 10, and I'll have another novel coming out after that, but I don't have a title for it yet. And I haven't sent it to my editor yet, although I think it's done and I'm very excited about it. I have a new picture book coming out eventually that will be announced very soon. This is July 9th that we're recording this. It should be announced within the next few weeks. It's my first time, it's my first time writing nonfiction for publication. And I can't say too much about it, but I'm collaborating with someone who's a hero of mine. So I'm very excited for the announcement of that one. That's fantastic. And I just got an idea for an extremely complicated picture book using a very complex rhyme scheme that I've just started playing with. Um, I don't know if that's going to turn into anything, but a dream of mine is to someday write a book that is a poem, not in verse, necessarily not like rhyming or free verse specifically, but something that is a more complicated kind of poem, like a, like a Sestina or a Villanelle or this form that I think I just made up for this project I'm playing with. Amazing. I love it. Are you one of those terribly annoying people who got a lot done in lockdown? Sounds like you've been writing. <laughs> I am. I'm a very, I'm one of those very annoying people. I'm very sorry. I've worked out every day <laughs> and I learned how to bake oh, bread no. and I wrote a whole oh, novel. No. I know. I'm very sorry. But I also, oh like, no, we can't be friends now. <laughs> but also like I live no. by myself and I don't have a family and I get very bored and lonely. So I had to do these things just to keep myself some semblance of like, moderately sane no that's so good that's so good I I was speaking to my sister earlier and she's already saying she has sort of like lockdown regrets she's like oh I should have done all these things well, I was like the good humans, news is that it's humans are ridiculous good news yeah. is that yeah. it's still happening <laughs> if we keep going the way we're going we might have another big lockdown oh, so man. yeah um well I'm so excited I will keep um my eyes open and um uh I, this will probably go out before that announcement is made, but I will definitely be re-promoting it. And when we when we do hear your news, that'll be great to oh, see yay. when that gets announced. Um, okay, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks again to Kyle for sharing his energizing passion for writing with us. Like I said in the interview, just soul of a writer. I wish I had ever had that confidence in anything that I've done. His website is www.kyllukoff.com where um, you can see his books and he's also got some excellent essays there. And he's on Twitter at shekels underscore library. So shekels is S-H-E-K-E-L-S underscore library. Storyteller is made by me, Lisa Golden, with help from my amazing producer, Kathy Swan. You can find us on Instagram at storyteller underscore pod, where you can see any updates and any guests we've got coming up. And on Twitter at storytellerpod number one. You can email me at storytellerpod at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode and any suggestions for people you'd like to hear on the show. Uh, I know it's broad, um, but really anyone who's passionate about what they do and sees themselves as a storyteller um, is, is what I'm looking for. I really hope I hear from you. Until next time.